Here's what I need you to do. Um, I need you to take the worship guide that you were handed when you walked in this morning. So all of you were handed what we call a worship guide. Uh, it says worship on the front. Um, and here's what I want you to notice. On the back side, there's a place for notes. Um, we're going to read a lot of scriptures today. Um, and in an effort to make it go a little faster, um, they will be on the screen. I will tell you where they're found. Um, but we're not going to go slow and allow everybody to open up their Bibles only because I want to read quite a few of them for you and I, it would help us to move along faster. But if there's a scripture that catches your eye, something that you want to study further or one that you just really like and would like to remember uh, and, and read later, um, the reference will be on the screen. I'll say it. That's a great place for you to write the scripture reference down. And then at the end, as we move towards the end of the service, I do have a few points for us to make and to observe, and if, you want, if you're the kind that likes to take notes, that's a great place to do it. So uh, on the front of your worship guide, there's a really creative worship, a really creative title. It's called Worship, um, because we have, we're now in week five of a series on worship. Um, now in the English language, the word worship can carry quite a few different meanings, um, and, and really, depending on who says, who says it, what they're saying it about, the context that surrounds that usage, worship can have quite a few different meanings. Um, for example, um, I guess I should have started this way today. Happy Bronco Day. Um, I know we're all excited about that today. Um, so if a boy, let's say he's eight years old, says, I worship Peyton Manning. Now, what does he mean? Well, he means I idolize Peyton Manning. I want to be like him. I think he's really cool. If a 16-year-old girl were to say, I worship Peyton Manning, what does she mean? Um, does she want to be just like Peyton? Well, what she probably means is um, he's famous, he's rich, he's talented. If you've ever seen his commercials, he's funny and he's cute. Um, which would be really weird because while he is all of those things, Peyton Manning is not cute. So it would be weird if she's meant that. But, right, if she, if she says, I worship Peyton Manning, she's thinking about something a little differently. If a grown man says, I worship Peyton Manning, all right, let's hope he doesn't think he's cute. If he says, I worship Peyton Manning, what does he mean? He means uh, maybe he's my hero. Or, I know everything about the man. I can tell you his birthday. I can tell you his wife's name and his kids' names. I know all of his stats. I have all of his trading cards. I have nine different things autographed by Peyton Manning. When a grown man says it, it means something very differently. Uh, if, if someone were to say, I worship the Broncos, they would say, uh, I watch every game. I have nine different jerseys. I painted my car orange and navy. Um, uh, I travel all over the country to go to all of their away games. If somebody said it and really meant, I worship the Broncos, um, then even that has somewhat of a different meaning. And so for us to talk about worship, which is a word that we love to throw around in Christian circles... Um, it's, it's a word that we use in church and, and in conversations with other Christians. But unfortunately, worship is a loaded word. 
And depending on who says it, they may be meaning different things. And so we've spent several weeks trying to bring ourselves to a place where we understand what worship is, what it means, and how it should be, um, how it should impact, and how worship should be a part of our life. And so here's how we define worship. Um, And this is a definition that we've developed in this series. And then we've really just spent four, this will be the fifth week, kind of talking about what does this definition mean. And so this is how we define worship. Uh, And the definition will be up here. Um, And it's living in and responding to the presence and person of the triune God. Living in and responding to the presence and the person of the triune God. God. And so in week one, we started our series by talking about obstacles to worship, things that can get in our way of really connecting with uh, living in and responding to God. Uh, The next week, uh, we talked about uh, who our God is, because one of the obstacles to worship is ignorance. And we said it like this, you can't worship a God you don't know. And so we spent one week just talking about our God is. Now we're all tempted to fill in the blank. Our God is awesome. Our God is merciful. Our God is gracious. And while all of those may be true and are true, we have to be able to stop and realize how awesome our God is and how big He is and how He is beyond our understanding and just be okay with the fact that our God is. And then in week three, we talked about what do we mean when we say triune God? What is this doctrine of the Trinity that Christians believe in and teach and adhere to? And so we spent a week just talking about what is the Trinity. How is our God triune? Uh, And we spent our time talking about how our God is one in essence, but three in person in God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then last week, we talked about how uh, how worship is a lifestyle. Um, how, how all of our life should represent uh, worship to God. Um, think about it like this. You know, we referenced Peyton Manning the Broncos earlier. Um, if somebody said, and they really meant it, I worship the Broncos, but they only watched the Broncos play football like once every three weekends, um, they couldn't remember, they they could only name two players on the entire team. They had never been to a game and they didn't own any t-shirts or jerseys or hats with the Broncos logo on it. Now all of us would say they don't really worship the Broncos. They may think, they may like the Broncos, they may think the Broncos are great and they may even be able to say accurately that the Broncos are their favorite NFL team. But if that were true, they don't really worship the Broncos. Even if somebody were to say, I watch every game on TV, but that's it. They don't really worship the Broncos. They just like them. For someone to say and actually mean they worship the Broncos would mean that their lives are invested in the Broncos. That the, the barista at Starbucks and the person in the cubicle next to him knows how much they like the Broncos because if you really worshipped them, it would come out of you. 
Well, the same is true with worshiping our God. We don't say we worship God because we sing three songs for 30 minutes once a week. Uh, True worship is a lifestyle. It should bleed out of us that the guy in the cubicle next to us and our barista at Starbucks should know that we worship God because our life screams it. Worship is a lot more than singing. Worship is the way we live our lives. It is a lifestyle. And like we read last week, the Bible says that in order to worship, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, that's where we've been thus far. Um, And that's the, the big heart of worship. But it would be crazy if we did a series on worship and we never talked about singing. Because while worship isn't limited to singing, it is a very important part. Um, And so here's what I want to do. I want us to look at some scriptures that talk about singing um, so that we can all be on the same page about what the Bible, what God has to say about singing. Because if you think about it, it is kind of strange. We don't sing corporately anywhere else unless you go to a baseball game and sing the national anthem. All right, we don't just go bowling and no one ever is like, hey, hey, before we roll the first ball or whatever you call it when you bowl, um, I, I think there's this great Miley Cyrus song that I think is appropriate here. Can we all just join hands and sing it together? Like nobody ever does that, right? So the fact that we get together every week and sing songs is somewhat different. And so why? So I have a number of scriptures for us. The references will be on the screen because I'm going to go through them a little quickly. And then we're going to talk about a little bit about maybe why God wants us to sing. Um, and so here's the first one, 1 Chronicles. We're going to start in the Old Testament and then we'll move to the New Testament. 1 Chronicles 16, starting in verse 23, says this, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Here's another one in Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Psalm 100. And this says verses 1 through 5, but this is actually the entire psalm. And so you can write down just Psalm 100. And it says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations and so that's a declaration of how good our God is but notice how it starts it starts with make a joyful noise to the Lord Psalm 68 starting in verse 4 sing to God sing praises to his name lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts his name is the Lord exult before him father of the fatherless and protector of widows it is God in his holy habitation Psalm 33, starting in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. 
Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And so now we get even a fuller picture where um, a lot of times the references to congregational worship are to singing, but now even God's saying, use the instruments, make it loud, and sing a new song. Isaiah 12, starting in verse 5, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 105, starting in verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Now I want us to jump into the New Testament. Um, I think of all the scripture references, both old and new, and that all we're going to read, I think uh, I, I may enjoy this next one the most because of what it teaches us, if you think about it for just a moment. Mark fourteen twenty six. Uh, and when they, this is talking about Jesus and his disciples, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, that's a pretty simple sentence, but let's paint the context, okay? Okay. Uh, This is the night before his crucifixion. Jesus has just eaten his last supper with the disciples. And he has just uh, instituted uh, what we now consider the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, depending on what Christian background you come from, um, where we take the cup and we take the bread to remember his sacrifice, the Passover that used to represent when God saved his people um, from the oppression of the Egyptians, now represents when God saved his people from the consequences of our sin. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper, and he spends his last evening with his disciples. And he even begins to warn them about what's going to take place. Um, That someone is going to betray him and hand him over for some money. They're going to take a bribe to turn over the Son of God. And then he begins telling his disciples, all of you by the, before this is over will flee from me. And he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You can feel the weight of the moment. Jesus knowing what he's about to walk into. He's going to go to the Mount of Olives where he's going to ask his disciples to stay up with him through the night and pray and despite how serious the moment is his disciples keep falling asleep and he keeps waking them up and saying can you not just stay awake with me for an hour can you not pray with me and they keep falling asleep and Jesus under the stress and the weight of the moment begins literally sweating drops of blood and it's in the Mount of Olives where Judas will show up with the soldiers And betray Jesus with a kiss. And it's in the Mount of Olives where he'll be arrested. And then for the next 12 hours will be some of the darkest moments human history has ever ever known. He just has dinner with his disciples. And knowing what's to come. Knowing that this will be one of the last moments he's with them before his death. 
they're singing. Before he goes to pray and prepare himself for what's to come, he gathers his disciples and together they sing. Next one in Acts 16. Starting in verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And so this is the Apostle Paul and one of his friends named Silas. And they have just entered into a new city, began preaching the gospel, and people got upset at their preaching. And so they took Paul and Silas and they beat them and arrested them. And then here's what happens in verse 24. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. That's talking about the jailer. And fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. If you know the story, um, in the midst of this singing and praying, an earthquake comes. The shackles fall off. Um, God does a movement, the jailer gets saved, his whole family gets saved, and God comes through. But notice in this dark hour, after having been beaten, sometimes we forget what this can look like. You ever seen videos on CNN or Fox News or YouTube when a mob gets a hold of somebody? In the Middle East, when the crowd goes crazy and beats somebody, Paul and Silas have just been beaten. Not punched, beaten. And now they're shackled in prison. And here, they begin praying and singing. And God shows up in a big way. Next one, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Here, Paul, um, after our study in Philippians, we know a lot about him, is writing to another church, and he's trying to give them instructions on how to conduct their life. And in part of his instruction, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. One more, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18. Again, this is is Paul writing. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And notice, um, he pits getting drunk with a different kind of lifestyle. Now, this is not a sermon on alcohol and whether or not you're allowed to have any or how much. Um, Here in a few months, we're doing a sermon series called Q&A, where you're going to get to ask any question you want and I'll answer it on a Sunday morning. And if you want to know about alcohol, you can ask it then and we'll talk about it. But notice what he is doing. He's contrasting two realities. Don't get distracted 
necessarily about the wine part, but here's what he's saying. There's one life that's controlled by God, and there's one life that's controlled by something else. Here, it just so happens to be alcohol. There's one life that's lived, that's consumed and controlled with something or someone, and then there's another life that's consumed and controlled by God. And that life is marked by a life of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In the Bible, there are more than 400 references to singing, and 50 different times we're commanded by God to sing to Him. Um, I don't know if you've ever taken note of this. Almost every time in the Bible when somebody has a vision um, of God, God is surrounded by angels who are either singing or chanting how good God is and declaring His glory and praise. Um, In your Bible, the largest book in your Bible, both by number of verses, number of chapters, and number of pages, is the book of Psalms. It's almost exactly right in the middle of your Bible. And the entire thing is a songbook. That's what the book of Psalms is. It's basically an old, old hymnal. The largest book in your Bible. What does that say? There was a time when the Psalms, they had music to them. And, and everybody would have known the tune and they could have sang along. The, the music has long been lost, but we have the words. And even many of our songs today are based on the words that we find in the book of Psalms. Singing is a huge deal for Christians and it's important to God. Fifty times we're commanded to sing. So why is it? Why would God want us to sing? seems like there's a lot of activities he could have commanded 50 times as opposed to singing. Some of you love it. Some of you are natural musicians and singers. Some of you are like me, and I'm always scared that my mic might be on when we start singing in here, because I can't. I do, but it's not pretty. So why, why does God ask us to sing? Let me give you three ideas um, that I think come from the Bible, but um, I think you'll understand and will help to make sense. Um, one is singing can help us to remember the words. And if you're taking notes, write that down. Singing can help us to remember the words. Maybe we can think about it like this. If I said, hey, uh, or, let, no, let's, let's do this. Uh, if, you're, if a small child came to you, they come out of children's church and they meet you today and they say, hey, can you tell me the letters of the alphabet? Are you going to go A, B, C, D, E? No, you're not. You'll, first of all, you'll look around and make sure nobody can hear you and you'll go A, B, C, D, right? Because all of us, that's how we learned them. Or if you're like me, and you rely way too much on spell check, and you're ever at a point where you don't have it, and you're going, how do I spell it? You go, I before E, except after C. 
unless you learn like the full version and it's I before E except after C or in what is it or in words that sound like A as in neighbor and way thank you all right so we have rhythms and chants and songs that help us to remember things that are important um, obviously nowadays we all have access to the bible at least in this country, speaking English. Um, we can get a Bible in a number of different versions, and they're fairly inexpensive. And if you want, you can download the Bible on your phone so that you always have it with you. For the last 2,000 years, uh, just since the time of Christ, having a Bible was not an option for the far majority of Christians. Um, having access to the written word in your language at an affordable price is a fairly modern invention Um, for a number of reasons. One, for a long, long time, uh, up until Gutenberg invented the printing press, uh, your Bible had to be hand-copied. The cost was enormous. So generally, a church would have a Bible, And when you wanted to learn the Bible, you came to church and you heard it read. Um, Even as things started to develop and more Bibles became available, uh, a lot of people couldn't read. So maybe you could have access to a Bible. What are you going to do with it? Because you can't read it. So for the majority of Christian history... Chants and creeds and songs have been what's used to teach people in the faith. Because all of us can remember a song once we start, once we get a hold of the tune, a lot easier than we can just remember a couple big paragraphs of words. And so for you and I, as we sing, and we sing songs over and over and over, they start to become ingrained in us and it allows us to remember and to hang on to those truths and to the words so that when we don't have a bible in front of us or maybe we just don't have time maybe you're driving in your car and you don't have the opportunity to stop and open it up or open up your phone bible or whatever it may be those songs burn and etch truths and words into our heart And there's something special about learning songs um, that doesn't come from just hearing a text, a paragraph being read to you. Um, And so singing can help us to remember words. Here's number two. Singing can help us engage our emotions. Um, I'm not a huge concert goer. My wife loves concerts. So two things happen. Either I buy her concert tickets and she takes a friend... Or occasionally, I'll go with her. Um, Now, the only caveat I need to say to that is that now that Garth Brooks has announced a comeback tour, I told my wife, I don't care what the tickets cost, we are going. That's the only concert in this world that I would pay ridiculous amounts of money to see. All right? Um, But other other than Garth Brooks... Um, I'm just not a big concert guy. Uh, I don't know if you are, if you enjoy concerts or not, but, but if you've ever been to a concert, 
And I'm not talking about a Christian concert. I'm talking about if you've ever been to a concert, you've seen worship take place. Watch what happens when people sing. Sing songs that have to do with imaginary ex-girlfriends. It doesn't even matter. Watch what happens when people start singing. Their eyes close. Hands go up. I've seen people cry at concerts. Because music pulls and draws out our emotion. And that is not limited to Christian music. Music stirs something up inside of us. Um, there's a lot of songs that when I was younger and played sports and was in football, um, songs that are inappropriate and I would never sing or play them here. Um, that was at another time. But um, songs that if I listen to today, I, have, I, don't, I haven't listened to them in six, seven, ten years, maybe more. If, there are some Metallica songs that when they go and they play, goosebumps will rise over my body. Because those are songs that I used to listen to to get pumped up before football games. And I don't have to listen to them every day. But those songs are etched in my mind. I don't even have to hear the words. I can hear the tune. And goosebumps will run up my arms. Because music draws out emotions in us. Uh, You may have not listened to the song that was played at your wedding that you danced with your spouse to in a long, long time. We play that song now, memories start cropping up. Because emotions and memories get tied to music. Now here's what we don't want. We don't want highly emotional but very empty experiences with God. And so we don't use music to trick our emotions uh, into being somewhere, doing something where our heart and our mind don't really agree, but, but when used appropriately, music can draw out emotions in us and give us experiences and connections and memories that are hard, if not impossible, to come to by some other way. Number one, singing can help us to remember the words. Number two, singing can help, in, help us engage our emotions. And number three, singing can help us express what we can otherwise, what we cannot otherwise express. Singing can help us express what we cannot otherwise express. Do you remember being a teenager and you had a crush, a boy or girl who you really liked, and all of a sudden all, all the songs on the radio started making sense? Right? You'd hear a, a, a cute song and your mind would go to that individual. Uh, we can make connections and express ourselves in ways that otherwise can't be expressed when we use music. Whether it's just the, the sound coming from the instruments uh, or, or what happens when we sing. Um, but powerful, life-changing messages can come through a three-minute song, whereas it takes me 45 minutes to get across one point up here. Uh, 
don't you wish I all, don't all you wish I could sing? We'd be out in three minutes. But I can't, so you're stuck listening to me. All right? We can express things through song that we usually cannot express through just simple words. It's another tool in our tool belt to be able to connect with God in a new way. It brings about special expressions that are very, very unique to Christians. And Chad mentioned it when he started the service this morning. Um, that He told you up front we were going to sing two hymns. One modern, one a little bit different. But what was powerful is not only are they great songs with deep, rich words, not only are the tunes good, but, but there's a special connection that happens when we sing old songs. Because we're literally uniting ourselves with Christians from 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 600 years ago. Christians that generation after generation after generation have sung together. Worship brings about unity. And there's very few ways that we can express our unity any better than with one voice we all sing together to glorify and praise our God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the gift of singing that you have given to us. I thank you for those who who have a voice and a special talent for singing uh, and the heart for leading us. For those of us who, who don't do it so well. God, I pray that you would make us as individuals and as a church, a church that worships you. Certainly that we would worship you in how we live our everyday lives, but also that we would be known as a people who sing unashamedly to you. I want you to keep your eyes closed for just a moment. I want to read to you what might be one of the oldest Christian songs that we know of. We just got done um, studying the book of Philippians, uh, which was probably written in the mid-60s A.D., And Paul quotes a song in Philippians. We didn't really talk about it a lot when we got there. And so you can imagine, this is a song that he quotes in 60 AD, but had at least been around long enough that his audience would have been familiar with the song in order for him to quote it. comes out of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot of different ways for us to worship in singing. Sometimes we uh, sing to God. It's almost like a a sung prayer. Um, Sometimes songs are confessions. You know, we don't have the words to confess it in prayer ourselves. A song can help us to confess uh, our shortcomings and our sin and, and how much we need God. And then there are also songs that sing about God, declaring who He is and what He's done. And that song that I just read to you is a very, very early Christian song. So early that long ago we lost the music to it, but God preserved the words for us. And for 2,000 years, united Christians have been able to believe in and, and hold on to and hold fast to the truth that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died for you and me. What makes our worship different, what makes our songs different than the rest of the world is because we don't sing about ourselves. We don't glorify ourselves. We don't raise ourselves up. We sing about God and His Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that moves and speaks to us. And what makes our songs different than every other religion's songs around this world is that every other religion teaches that you got to work hard and hope for the best. Hope that one day you get a chance to go to heaven. If you do it all right. We celebrate because our God has already done it. And that's why Paul said that Jesus is the greatest name and that at His name every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Because our God has done it. And He deserves every bit of our attention, our love, our affections, and our singing. This morning, if you're here with us and I want you to know that the first step to worshiping God 
is not learning the songs or learning the words to the songs. The first step is being reconciled back to your Creator. And that comes by believing in and confessing Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. Asking for forgiveness of your sins. Asking Him to make you right with Him again. And He promises to give us the Holy Spirit that helps enable us when we sing to connect to God. Lord, thank You for this time. Thank You for what You're doing and what You're teaching and how You're moving. Would You continue to move in this place? Would what we think about and sing bring You honor and glory? Lord, we love You and praise in Your name. Amen.